All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Love me tender, love me sweet, never let me go. You have made my life complete, and I love you so. Love me tender, love me true, all my dreams fulfilled. For my darling, I love you, and I always will. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I do love you so, almost as much as I love fishing and drinking. And of course, it takes a bit of both to get me to sing the king. Hey, welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the singing professor, I mean the fishing professor, where you can just call me the king. Well, I'm the king of kings, you see. Got everything you need. Baby, I'm Elvis. Baby, baby, I'm Elvis. Baby, baby, I'm Elvis. Yes, that is a great song called Elvis that I just destroyed by that magnificent Texas songwriter, Pat Green. And yes, I am an Elvis fan and I have got Elvis on the mind because it was I was just over at Yankee Town, Florida fishing on Follow That Dream Highway, where they filmed that great Elvis movie, Follow That Dream, which includes that great scene of Elvis on a bridge fighting a tarpon that he hooked on a cane pole using a safety pen as a hook. Just a great fishing moment and a great Florida Elvis moment. But hey. I don't believe that Elvis is dead, yeah. I don't believe that Elvis is dead, yeah. But it doesn't matter, because we have got a great show for you today, because I have got Captain George Gazd, host of the Unfathom Fishing Show, a great TV show that does a remarkable job, not just of showing us great fishing, but teaching us how to do that same level of fishing. And after Captain Gazd and I banter about fishing, we'll take a bourbon break, and I'll give you my thoughts about Angel's Envy. And then I'll do something a little different for this week's Fishing Professor Top 10 Countdown. I'm going to count down my top 10. Scratch that. I'm going to count down my top 15 favorite fishing quotes. That's right. I'm getting professorial and literary today as we delve into fishing culture rather than fishing tackle. I don't want to be a tiger because tigers play too rough. I don't want to be a lion. Because lions ain't the kind that fish enough. And me and the king, we want to go fishing. So welcome to the Rodcast. Let's get casting. All right, my listening crew, we have got a great conversation coming to you this day because I've got Captain George Gods in the inshore offshore digital studio today. Now, Captain Gods is the host of that fantastic show, Unfathom Fishing, which identifies its mission in a really telling and I think important way. So a quick quote about Unfathom's approach, and here's a quote. Unfathomed engages a wide viewership through use of cinematic storytelling with a focus on appealing destinations, intriguing personalities, and quality fisheries. Just as important as the fishing, Unfathom portrays the outdoor lifestyle that has a broad viewership appeal to fishermen and non-fishermen alike. 
Unfathom makes fishing accessible to all because of its eye for nature conservation and education, as well as fishing instruction. And you know, from my perspective, it's just that, both a visually beautiful show and a deeply informative show, and it certainly is one of my favorites. Now, Captain Gods didn't come to Unfathom by chance. He had wanted to do a television fishing show since he was a kid. Yeah, but don't we all, right? But Captain Gods didn't get there right away. He spent 15 years working in emergency medicine before stepping aside from that stress of that life, got his captain's license, and started guiding. And, you know, as I hear that story and as I tell that story, for me, that really echoes that flip palette story for me in so many ways of moving away from that high-stress life into that dream fishing life. Now, during his time as a guide, he regularly appeared on other folks' shows, and producers recognized both his on-screen talent and his sincere fishing knowledge. He was offered the opportunity to host the Real-Time Florida Sportsman Show, which he hosted for more than 100 episodes over eight seasons. And in 2019, he started working on Unfathom, which has become one of the best fishing shows out there. I am thrilled to have Captain Gods in the real, on the broadcast today. Captain Gods, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, and thanks for being on the broadcast. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So on the show, I usually try to, and I gave some of this away already, I like to start the conversations by asking for some origin stories, some background from my guest. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you got into fishing, first of all, but how you developed that into, how did you develop that passion into what has translated into a really successful and passionate career? Um, I think I'm a lot like uh, most kids that grew up that loved fishing. My father fished. Um, I think it was a desire to f follow in his footsteps. You know, I remember from the time I was my smallest, you know, my dad going out in a 17 foot Boston whaler. And that's how our weekends were spent. We were either skiing one day and, and fishing the next, or I was fishing canals around town. And I, just growing up, that was the, that was the thing that I did. A lot of other kids were out doing other things. And I just remember all I was doing was fishing. Um, you know, and then I kind of got into my teenage years and got away from it a little bit. And I thought about pursuing it as a career, but I, it just, it, it, it wasn't as appealing at the point. You know, I, I just, there's some negative drawbacks on sometimes making it a career. You can kind of take, um, you know, different turns with it. I thought about FWC and, you know, but somehow, um, I ended up in a nursing career, um, after a couple career changes and, I was an emergency room nurse. And the great thing about doing that is, you know, when you're working full time in a hospital, you're three days a week, it's 12 hour shifts. So it's almost like being a fireman. Um, the same thing, those guys have a lot of days off. So it affords the ability with four days off to almost kind of pursue a different career. So while I was working at the hospital, I went ahead and I got my captain's license and I started guiding part time um, just for, because of the love of fishing, you know, it wasn't so much to make a career of it. It's just, you know, how can I get out there more and how does this make sense? So there wasn't a lot of guides in my town at the time, um, you know, and I was kind of learning as we, as I went, you know, I really didn't have anybody take me under their wing. I kind of learned as I went and um, that career just kind of, kind of just, I built it up slowly. There was no secret. There was no one thing. I mean, I get the question all the time. What's this? There was no secret. It was just, consistency and i think that's been the the secret to my success and everything that i've done it's just to be consistent and i was just consistent with the fishing and then opportunities came around to be 
you know, a, a guest host on some shows because this area had gotten, you know, some some publicity and some popularity. It's a great fishery where I live in Stewart, Florida. Um, so those opportunities presented themselves. I made the best of them. And then Florida Sportsman Magazine is based right here in Stewart, my hometown. And I had a relationship with some of the guys over there. And um, yeah, I just got fortunate. It was during the time when the Internet was you know, these web-based forums were really getting popular. And Florida Sportsman had a very popular forum, a fishing forum. And initially, we, um, Blair Wickstrom, the publisher of the magazine, had the idea of creating a show that was just web-based. It was a, a bi-weekly show, web-based, where we took the reports that people were posting and we traveled to their destinations and tried to mimic what they did. If they had a great weekend grouper fishing, we'd travel to their destination and try to do the same thing. So it was just me and a cameraman every other week. It was, it was, it was grueling. It was a grueling uh, schedule. Now that I look back on it, every other week, you know, weather dependent, all these things that we did. But for the first year and a half, we just traveled around the state of Florida, and we made, you know, the the viewers and the um, the readers of Florida Sportsman Magazine. We kind of highlighted what they did, and um, eventually, what happened was the magazine got purchased by the Outdoor Sportsman's Group, which owned the network, and they were looking for more content. And it was just fortunate enough that the show went to the network and um, it was successful there. We had a lot of good seasons. You know, I had a great time there. It was a wonderful opportunity to travel around the state to meet incredible people and, you know, to learn all different types of fishing. I did not have a huge background in, in different types of fishing. So it was a great opportunity to learn things from from other people. And then five years ago, we just decided, you know, we were looking for more, a little more creative freedom. And more than anything, just kind of looking to travel outside of Florida. You know, Florida Sportsman Magazine is based in Florida. So a lot of those stories they wanted to keep in Florida. And we were just looking to kind of branch out and do other things and more storytelling, more creativity. So um, just decided to go out on our own. And, you know, kind of that's where I'm at today. I quit the hospital maybe nine years ago. I quit the hospital um, and the guidings kind of backed off as well as the show's gotten more popular. I just spend a lot more time focusing on the show. Um, and really try to you know put all my energy into that. And then, you know, at the same time, trying to take care of my good clients that are some repeats that come back in town. That's a fantastic way to tell that story. You know, as a contributing editor for Florida Sportsman, I'm glad to hear you promoing the magazine. I think that what uh, Blair and Jeff are doing with that magazine is still fantastic, particularly that video content. So tell us a little bit more about Unfathom, the fishing aspect of the show, the location focus and things like that, and what you're trying to accomplish with that show. Um, I think it really, the heart of it is fishing to me was never about the catching. It was never about the fish. And even to this day, it's not about the fish. To me, when I look back, when I was most excited when I was a kid, it was all about the anticipation of going a place or getting out there on the water. Just the anticipation of, you know, the day to come and then hanging out with your friends. And even, you know, the time afterwards, the time, you know, cleaning up and, you know, it, it was just the, the fish was just the, the icing on the cake. So really what we wanted to do with Unfathom was, the fishing was just going to be the spine of the book that held the story together. And really we wanted to go to different destinations. We wanted to highlight whether it was a certain destination, whether it was a certain type of fishery or whether it was a person, you know, everybody, every place, everything has a story. And we we're just trying to do a little bit more storytelling to engage the whole family. I didn't want a fishing show where 
you know, the wife sat down next to the husband and she saw it was a fishing show. And she's like, oh, my God, and got up and walked into the other room because she couldn't couldn't stand it. You know, and to me, I watch shows where, you know, as soon as it turns on, the guy's got a rod bent over and the whole time it was bent over. And I just wanted something a little bit different than that. Well, I think that what you're doing there is actually really great. And one of the things that I really like about Unfathomed that I think is both generous on your behalf and also a really great educational thing that you do is that you really provide a lot of detail about not just the places you are, but the gear you use and how you're doing things. And if you look at any of the episodes, particularly those that are posted on YouTube, in the description for the videos, you regularly list exactly what equipment you're using, right down to model numbers, sizes, and so on. But you also do a lot with the location, telling people a lot about the location where you are. Could you talk about why that level of sharing is part of what you do on Unfathomed? You know, to me, if you have a successful day on the water, if you have a talent uh, 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 catching a certain type of fish, it's it's never... What good is it unless you're sharing with people? I mean, I, I've always felt that way. Like, if I have this talent, if I know these secrets, they're they're no good just kept to myself. So um, we want to do things that everybody can do. We don't want to be go off to these crazy destinations that aren't obtainable to everybody. We want to kind of cater to the average guy that can do these things that we're doing. And we just want to make it reasonable. We don't want to, you know, it. Fishing is not that complicated. It's never been that complicated for me. I've always kept it simple. And I think that's kind of the, the philosophy that we try to do with the show. You know, we try to, you know, break it down. It not too instructional, but at the same time, give the information to people, let them, you know, have the ability to go to these places that we go and and try the things that we do. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the driving things of that show when I watch it is you end up walking away saying, I want to go there. I want to fish that way. I want to see those things. So with that in mind, let me ask you by way of a couple of the episodes that uh, that you've done, I'm going to use those as sort of an avenue in to get you to talk about some of your fishing strategies. So for instance, you recently did an episode up my way out of Steenhatchee, and you spent some time on there talking about the grass flats we have up this way. Um, could you talk about your strategies for thinking about targeting fish in grass flats as opposed to, say, Key West flats or places like that? Yeah, you know, I love that area. Anytime you get around those marshy areas, um, you know, I don't have a lot of that. And uh, to me, that's kind of like that quintessential um, shallow water fishing. It was in my mind, it was never like a, a barren flat in the keys. It was more those marshy areas where you would see a, a redfish belly crawling in super shallow water. Um, so, you know, uh, a, a challenge that we've kind of faced, uh, during all of these years of production is being able to do everything with one boat. So that's, that's been a first challenge. So, um, to get to a lot of those areas, as you know, is super shallow. So um, that's been, we're fishing out of a 28 foot bay boat. Um, but a lot of people don't have super skinny boats. So we try to do things. I try to target areas that other people can get to as well. I don't want to be, you know, someplace that only an airboat can access, you know, true. Yeah. I'd love to get out there. And sometimes we will do that. We'll go to these certain areas, but for the most part, I want to do something that everybody can do. So a lot of these, you know, these Creek beds, these Creek mouse, a lot of times that we'll target off from these deeper channels. Um, and any time that I can visually see a fish to me, 
that's everything. When I can see a redfish tailing down a Spartina marsh bank, I mean, that I live for that kind of thing. Um, so I don't get that here. Uh, I'm on the Indian River. We don't have that kind of water. So to get up to an area like that, to be able to target those fish in that skinnier water, to break out the light tackle, you know, to make those longer casts um, and to see that visual bite, you know, that's what kind of stuff I really, really love. Yeah, and this is a fantastic area for that. Uh, uh, just south of where you were in Steenhatchee and uh, Crystal River is the uh, largest grass flat in the country also. So we have lots of that environment around here. All right, so different episode. And I'm going to say this as someone who spends a tremendous amount of time fishing out of Key West. I love that episode. I got to tell you, the temporary Pepe tattoo was a great bit. Uh, Captain Pepe Gonzalez, of course, is certainly a Key West legend also. I do love the commitment you have for him and the love you express and the willingness to express that love temporarily. Not ready for that real Pepe tat yet, are you, though? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> we were out on Duval and they had Hannah tattoos that would last a week or two. And we thought, you know, what What better way to, to, to really uh, let Pepe know that we really cared about him than to get a tattoo that said Pepe on my arm. So that For, was, for a week. <laughs> for a week. For a week. Yeah, yeah. For a week was fine. So... He found humor in it. We're, you know, we always try to, my production team is a bunch of young guys and we love going out and having a good time. You know, that's, that's to us. We want to be having fun. So when we can make it fun, you know, the same things you want to do with your buddies on the boat. We don't, we're not that serious. You know, this, this is not a serious job. It's fishing and we're just out there to have a good time. And Pepe is a great guy. I've spent numerous episodes with Pepe. Um, it's a great fishery. It's a great destination. You know, sometimes it poses its challenge with weather, you know, pretty much out in the, practically in the middle of the Atlantic or in the middle of the Gulf, whichever way you look at it. But so often you're confined uh, with heavy winds. And uh, I think this episode, we kind of were as well. So we were kind of limited to what we could do. But, you know, again, it the fishing is just a small part of it. To, to, to spend the time down there with Pepe, you know, we caught some fish, you know, hang out with his wife, with, with his kids you know, going to dinner with him to his favorite restaurants and walking Duval and hanging out with the people and, you know, showcasing all that. It, it, again, if I were just to go to these destinations and rely on the fishing, the stress would be just too much. You know, I don't need to go to a destination and catch 20 fish. It takes four or five good fish to make an episode. So that takes a lot of stress off of it. If you can build the backside, build a story behind every episode. And we try to, it's, it's actually easy to do it in Key West with Pepe. Yeah. And it, there's no doubt, as you describe it, that's a fun episode. So speaking of episodes though, with a lot of fish, that Chubb K Bahamas episode, you cover a lot of species in that. And I have to say that despite my blue water lust and those amazing images of the marlin and the tuna, for some reason, it's that short bit about the bonefish that really stand out for me on that episode. And maybe it's because in that segment, you're talking a lot about friendship and you're talking a lot about the bonding over fishing, but also because those are some amazing pics of all those bones swimming across that flat. I don't think that act that scene is as action-filled as some of the others in that episode, but those shots of those bonefish just really stand out in that episode. So let me take that as a segue opportunity to pick your brain for some pro tips and lean on your reputation as a generous teacher and ask you, what are your favorite best strategies for targeting bones? You know, um, I would love to sit here and give you a bunch of tips, but honestly, I and this is where I need to be authentic and, and, and real. 
I, that was probably maybe the first or second time, third time maybe that I ever caught a bonefish. It's just, I don't have that experience. So when I travel to a destination like that and do something like that, I try to be a sponge. You know, I try to, I, I was embarrassed that my fly fishing is not, you know, it's not spectacular. I was getting wind knots and the guides looking at me and, and I'm just like, oh my God. But, you know, I just never had the experience growing up of doing that kind of fishing. I grew up on Dania Pier. My mom would drop me off in the morning and I'd be happy catching bait fish all day. So I just never had that experience growing up. But, you know, when I got to a destination like that and there's a thousand bonefish in front of you, you know, it was one of those places and it is one of those places that you can go to and with the least amount of experience, you know, especially with uh, a guide like Ramon that we had, a bonefish Ramon that we had there. It, it's, he makes it simple. It makes it easy, whether you're fly fishing or you don't want to throw a fly, you want to throw a, a spinning rod, you know, it, he makes it so easy, especially when there's that many fish in front of you. But I just don't have the tips. I mean, honestly, I just, I think that was the third or fourth time I've ever caught a bonefish. Well, I think that's a fair and honest answer. All right, so let's let's move out of the tips then, and let's talk current events, because I think this is awesome. And if I'm reading the feed correctly, this just happened recently. You caught the biggest redfish of your angling career, and you did that up in Va Beach with the Ritter Boys of Marva Outdoors while filming an episode of Unfathom. And if I'm reading the picture you posted correctly, you hooked up around the bridge tunnel. So congrats on that landmark catch. Tell me about that fish. Yeah, that that was, uh, you know, we again we traveled to a destination. We had one great day of weather. The first day we arrived, we Kobe a fish. We had a very, we, we had the idea of going there, shooting two episodes. First day we had a very successful day. Winds were down. You know, side fishing was really good. So we had a really successful day, Kobe fishing. Um, the following day, the winds picked up and it was full fetch across the bay. I mean, it was just brutal. No other boats went out. And we were very limited on where we could go. You know, we knew we had the bridge. We knew we had the tunnel as as shelter. So our idea was just to kind of tuck in behind those those areas. And those guys up there, you know, they target it. They do a little, you know, a lot of times they're soaking baits on the bottom or the fishing baits on the bottom. And I went there with the idea of, you know what, I really want to catch these on a jig. And I said to the guys, I said, listen, just take me to an area where you know they're at. Um, and it was something that, you know, they don't do a lot of jig fishing there, but I was confident if I got in an area where I knew the fish were, um, I was confident that I could catch them. So we, we headed over to the tunnel. I, I was able to throw the side vision up on the Raymarine, kind of scope the area out and you could clearly see the fish at the end of the rubble pile. There was, a, you know, it turned to sand and you could see the fish sitting on the edge of the sand. So we were able to position the boat, you know, within casting distance and, I think it was the very first cast that we made on a jig. We caught a cobia. We're like, oh, whoa. And then it was cast after cast after cast that if your jig got down to the bottom with that gulp, you were going to get bit by something. And a lot of times it was a big redfish. And it happened to be, I think, the largest redfish I've ever caught was on, you know, that gulp paddle tail. It was a uh, 49 and a half inch fish. And to me, that was that's huge. I just don't see redfish that that size, especially coming on artificial and um and casting to him like that it was that was definitely a treat yeah that's a nice fish and i did notice that you did that on the gulp on the paddle shad right so berkeley's one of your sponsors and i want to talk about some of the tackle that you use for that fish 
And I think it was about a year ago, you did a video called Why I Use Berkeley Gulp, and that's really a video worth watching. Now, I'm not sponsored by Berkeley, but I want to talk about Gulp because I talk about Gulp and Gulp Alive baits on the Rodcast a lot. They're regularly included in my weekly top 10 list. So given your Gulp expertise and clearly the success you've had with them, that big red being a perfect example, can you tell us a little bit about Gulp and why they work so great? And maybe if you want, even though I've explained this before on this podcast, uh, offer some clarification about the difference between Gulp and Gulp Alive. Um, yeah, you know, I was, I'm always asked if I had one lure around the state of Florida, actually anywhere kind of in the Southeast, if I went anywhere, what would I have? And then the answer is always the same. It would be a Berkeley Gulp and it would probably be a jerk shad. It'd be something that I could kind of fish anywhere. Um, on a jig head, like a three eighths ounce jig head. If I had that five inch gulp jerk shad, three eighths ounce Berkeley jig head, I'm confident I could pretty much catch about every species that there is, whether it's inshore, offshore. It's just one of those baits that the profile's right, the scent pattern's right, everything about it. You know, you can fish it slow, you can fish it fast, you can fish it on top, you can fish it on the bottom. It works for redfish, snook, tarpon. I mean, it it works offshore for mahi. It catches so many different things. And um, and I think really what it is, it's it's having confidence in the bait. And I have extreme confidence in that bait. And um, I think it started years ago here in Stewart. I started fishing it, um, bouncing the bottom for snook. And it just works wonders for snook here, bouncing on the bottom. You can put a, you know, a, a four-inch shrimp on a jig head. You can throw it up current, let it hit the bottom, bounce it back, and you're going to catch redfish and snook all over the state of Florida. You know, you can get into a dock light and take that weight off and just put a little circle hook on the tip of a three-inch shrimp and whip it under a dock light and rip it out as fast as you can. And that's so often one of those baits that gets eaten every night under dock lights. So, um, you know, so there's so many different – they have so many different styles and stuff that you can do with it. It's it's just one of those go-tos. It's just one thing that you should have in your box. And I'm not just saying – I am sponsored by Berkeley and have been for years, but even if I wasn't, it's just that – it's just one of those things that I, you got to have in your box. Yeah. And to know the difference between them all, oh, you're getting way above my pay grade and outside of my wheelhouse. Um, <laughs> no problem. To be quite honest, but – you know, I have my favorites and I, I kind of don't really get too far away from those. I sometimes change the size. Like when I was up in Virginia, I went to like the largest paddle tail that I could I could possibly find because I just wanted a big profile bait. And then a lot of times when we're, you know, whatever it is, we'll scale the baits back um, to, to our targeted species. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, those Berkeley baits really are reliable. So let me shift a little bit. I still want to talk about that red, but I want to talk about the other tackle you were using because you took that big boy on a new Pen Authority and the new Carnage 3 rod. Now, that Pen Authority is something else. In fact, I just recently had Ben Joyce of Pen Reels on the Rodcast to talk about this new top shelf spinning reel from Pen. So from your experience with that new reel, Tell us your thoughts about it because that's something new that Penn's doing and what it adds to uh, Penn's lineup because that's that's sort of their new top-tier spinning line, spinning reel. Yeah, it definitely is. And um, this is the first season that I've been using it. Um, we've been having great success with it, um, using it offshore, the, the 7,500 size, uh, sail fishing here at Stewart. Um, I was just in Guatemala. Um, I brought a 5,500 down with me and I spent – you know, all day surf fishing, you know, chest high in the water for, for snook 
down there and confident with the, all those sealed bearings and, and as sealed as that rod reel is, you know, knowing that I could be out there in that kind of conditions, pull it out, rinse it off, and it's going to be fine the next day. You know, whether it's the, you know, heavy drag that we need down here. A lot of times when we're snook fishing, our drags are locked all the way down. We're fishing in high structure areas. I tell clients, the only drag is going to be your feet across the deck because when he hits, you need to go and you need a reel that can kind of pull those fish out. And the authority is, is one that does that, especially with the new Carnage three rods too. We're having a lot of good success with those. I brought those down as well, um, more for the boat rods. Uh, I did have one spinning rod for the snook fishing, but then I was using all the new Carnage threes uh, boat rods for our sail fishing down there, paired up with the new Fathom two um, high speed Fathom two uh, conventional reels for for fishing for sailfish down in Guatemala. We caught ninety eight sailfish in three days, you know, and and, and uh, no failures. Everything worked perfectly. You know, they're a little more used to using heavier tackle down there and to pick up that carnage three. It's a super light rod to be able to, you know, hold that thing. Cause when you're, we were tournament fishing, fishing, and when you're tournament fishing, you're holding that reel in your hand all day. If you're, if you're serious about it. So to stand there all day with that, that fathom in your hand with that carnage and just kind of waiting for the bite, you know, you don't want something that's super heavy. So that kind of pairing, you know, especially was was perfect in the situation that we just had. You're you're anticipating all my questions. I want to get about. I want to talk to you about that that tournament trip and the sailfish in a second. But while we're while we're still talking about the authority, and this is probably a question that maybe you don't want to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway um, because you're also sponsored by Van Stall, and I don't want to put any conflict of interest situation here. But these are both pure fishing companies. I have to ask. How do you see the authority stacking up against the van stalls? Because I keep hearing that comparison in a lot of places. Yeah, you you know, as that top tier reel from coming from Penn, I think that's kind of the market that they're going after, you know, but it's it's their own market, you know, that and I think it really caters to a lot of the the surf fishermen too, the guys up in the northeast that that are dunking reels all the time. So when you can have you know, a high quality reel that can stand and withstand those kind of, um, you know, environmental tortures that you put it through. Um, you know, that's, that's speaking, saying something really good. And Von Stahl has always had a great reputation, you know, and now that the pure fishing is the parent company of both, both, you know, I don't know if they're sharing technology, but I know both are great reels. I haven't had a lot of, um, exposure with Von Stahl, Honestly, most of my exposure has always been with Penn. Okay. So going back to that Steenhatchy episode, um, I noticed in there that there you all were using some of the Penn Fathoms low-profile reels. And uh, low-profiles have gained a lot of popularity out in California, and they're starting to become more popular on the East Coast for inshore anglers. In fact, in that same conversation I had with Ben Joyce, we talked about this increased interest in low-profile reels as an inshore reel. Could you talk about why the Fathom Low Profile is becoming so popular on the East Coast? Yeah, you know, um, some guys just like that. You know, a lot of guys, too, that come from the freshwater side of it, love that baitcaster uh, style uh, reel and, and the ability to, you know, to, to fish that way. And casting is comfortable for them and the, the amount of torque and how you can put different torque on the fish. Um, I didn't have a huge a lot uh, exposure to, to that side of, of fishing to bait casters. But, um, when they released it, we brought them out over there. You know, I've used them in that situation. I've also used them in a little bit, um, um some sh shallow water, 
uh, grouper fishing as well. Um, and uh, just, you know, it's it's just something different for me rather than picking up a spinning rod every day. It's, it's neat for me to go and do it. it. It's just like the times that I get to go bass fishing. Um, but I think it just serves a certain niche. Some people just like that conventional style or that baitcaster style reel. And, um, you know, it's, it's nice that they have a saltwater version of that for people now. Yeah, I definitely want to check that out. And like I said, I talked to Ben Joyce from Pure Fishing about it the other day. So you kind of anticipated my next question and completely blew my smooth segue about current events and uh, talking about that sailfish tournament you were fishing in El Salvador. Could you tell us about that? Because from what you just said and the pictures I saw, you guys caught a lot of sailfish. I think you said 98 sails in three days. Yeah, it was incredible fishing. So uh, twice a year, I travel down to Guatemala and I take clients. I take 20 clients twice a year to to um, a Pacific Fins is a resort down in Guatemala and experience the fishing down there. It is absolutely incredible. I first went to Guatemala five years ago and it's one of those places that I just fell in love with. It's it's again, it's not just the fishing. It's the people, it's the history, it's everything about that area is amazing. I mean, we've filmed episodes every season out of there. And actually, while we were just down there with the clients, we had filmed an episode for this coming season. But on the tail end of that, I sent everybody, I got to the airport, I sent everybody home. And um, uh, the owner of the resort invited me to travel down to El Salvador. So we sent one of the boats from Pacific Fins, 120 miles down the coast. We jumped on a small plane. And flew down to El Salvador to fish the El Salvador uh, Billfish Invitational. And that was a really great experience. First time for me ever traveling to El Salvador. Fishery is very similar to Guatemala. Pacific sailfish, blue marlin, really are the targeted species. Kind of long runs, 50-mile uh, runs is the first day where we found the fish. But the fish were thick. And when you get in them there, when you have that many opportunities, the first day we didn't find the fish till midday. So we were a little behind the eight ball. The, the best boat caught 52 the first day. And I think we caught 22 the first day. They just happened to find the fish first. And the first person to find those fish usually wins because a lot of times we didn't move very far for three, two and a half days. We stayed in the same area. And the great thing about going to a place like that is you're not, you're going to get so many opportunities that you can kind of refine your skills. You, you can go there as an amateur and leave as an expert because you're going to have 50 different shots at, at feeding a sailfish, or you're going to have five different shots at feeding a blue marlin. There's very few places that you can go and, and say that that's the case. I mean, the one day we caught uh, 42 and that was, we probably had 60, 60 bites, 65 bites. And that's not uncommon for that area. So, and these are big fish and they're coming in and they're, the great thing about Pacific sailfish is they are aggressive. They're not like an Atlantic sailfish that are lazy. They come in, they fired up, um, they're on a squid chain. And the funny thing about Guatemala is they will, they won't even allow you to fish dredges down there. They want the fish to stay up for the fly fishermen. So they don't want any fish to go down. So they, they only allow you like squid chains, anything on the surface. El Salvador was a little different. We were able to fish dredges. Um, but again, these fish are aggressive. They're very visual. They'll come right into a squid chain, right on the transom of the boat. Um, and to watch that bite is, is amazing. Um, we ended up Fourth place, I think we, we by one fish, we would have had third place. It is just, and you think back how many different opportunities, how many fish I missed, and to, and to miss 
one uh, guy Harvey actually beat us at a third place and to know that he beat me by one fish. And after thinking about how many I missed is, it's still killing me to this day. <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you're fishing against expertise there too, at that point. Right. I mean, it's not the, that's not guys first, uh, his first sailfish. So. No, no. And actually we're going back um, d- December, December 9th through the uh, 11th is the Guatemala billfish invitational. So I'll be traveling back down with the team and um, we're, we're looking for a little redemption, but it's funny because I, I packed all my rods, my reels. I left everything down there. So I got my whole setup down there. I'm going to bring new sp- spools of, um, of line, but I have my new fathom twos down there. My carnage three rods. I have two international fifties as pitch, as pitch rods um, for blue Marlin, the new ally uh, blue water rods for them. So and then when I was down there, I caught a blue marlin as well. So that was only my second blue marlin ever, and I was able to catch one uh, a week and a half ago down there. Oh, that's great! You're—I saw that you're also doing another one of those fan trips to Guatemala in April as well, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, like I was saying, twice a year, um, I put these groups together. The next trip, I think we have uh, already half of it booked up. It tends to book up pretty quick. Um, you know. I think what's nice about it is a lot of people have hesitation traveling to a destination like Guatemala. I always get the question, oh, is it safe? Is it, you know, you're, oh, I brought my kids to Guatemala and I traveled from one end of the country to the other with them in a van. And I've never once ever in Guatemala ever felt unsafe. I've never once had somebody be rude to me in Guatemala. And I've been there probably 15 different times. And that says a lot. You know, I'm not an ambassador for Guatemala. I just love it as a destination. So when I can bring a group of people, take all the guesswork out of it, you know, we arrange everything. It's fully inclusive. You know, I travel with them to the airport. You know, we land at the airport. We transfer to the to the coast and, you know, we spend three full days of fishing. But then what we do, what I love to do is we take an extra day and we go to their old capital city of Antigua. Not the island Antigua, but their old capital city is called Antigua. And it's at the base of a volcano, Agua, that erupted in the 1700s and flooded the city. But it was rebuilt. And it's like a Spanishly influenced, just beautiful, just beautiful, amazing streets, cobblestone. And we go and we spend a day there and we spend a night there at a beautiful hotel. We let people, you know, go tour the city shop you know eat at the restaurant so it's not again it's not just the fishing we get to go and do other things as well and you know we just kind of take care of everything for everybody um you know i'm there the whole time fishing alongside them in another boat or just you know hanging out with them at the hotel hanging out with them at the resort it's just always a good time i think this is like our our sixth trip down there as a hosted trip and it's just one of those things i i've really taken a liking to it it's like i feel like a concierge but to me, again, fishing is always about sharing it with other people. And then when I can travel to a destination like this and share the fishery and then also share the culture with people as I learn it as well, I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I just signed up for Babel. I'm trying to learn my Spanish. So I fit in a little bit more, but I just love, you know, whether it's here sharing that experience with people or there, you know, it's just, it's just a great experience to do. Uh, I love that. I love that attitude. I love the whole possibility of experience. Hey, I want to jump back to something you said a second ago when you were talking about that tournament, um, because it kind of caught me off guard. I mean, you're from Stewart and that whole area really, you know, from Fort Pierce on down to Pompano, probably, 
you know, particularly in the next, you know, in, in the winter months, that's sailfish heaven for us. And, um, you know, I, I heard in what you said, that distinction between the Pacific and the Atlantic sailfish. But my guess is you probably cut your teeth on a lot of sailfishing in your home waters, too. Could you talk a little bit about why uh, why those specific sailfish really have a little bit more of your attention these days? Yeah, um, Stewart is, again, historically known as one of the top sailfish places. You know, they call it sailfish capital of the world. I mean, that's obviously the chamber. Sailfish marinas right there. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> but we do have some world-renowned sailfishing. And uh, in the wintertime, we have some very historic dead bait only tournaments. And that's what's unique about this area. You know, this area, Fort Pierce, up in the Sebastian area, traditional dead bait, trolled, ballyhooed tournaments. Where you get south of us into the Palm Beach area, Broward, Dade County, you know, a lot of that turns into live baiting, kite fishing. What's different about up here is as the coast cuts back to the west, the there's not as much structure for these fish to be on. So these fish tend to be spread out more. So hence the reason that you need to cover a little bit more area. Down in Palm Beach, you can sit on a reef line. You know, I can fish a kite. And because the contour of the water drops off so quickly, I can have one bait in 100 feet of water and another bait in 150 feet of water just by how I fly the kite. It's a lot different here. It takes you, uh, you know, a mile or two to, to get that kind of depth difference. So this area is a traditional dead bait fishery. Um, has some incredible, incredible anglers. I mean, I've learned some some of the best guys. I'm actually traveling down to Guatemala with some guys that are just super high, knowledgeable, just bring a, a depth of experience that I could only hope for. You know, I don't ever, and I tell people this all the time, I don't have that kind of experience. I don't have that kind of expertise. I've, I've always tried to be humble with my fishing. I'm always willing to learn. I'm always trying to pick things up and pointers from from other people. But these fish just aren't aggressive. Atlantic sailfish just are not as aggressive for some reason. You know, a typical Atlantic sailfish is going to be 40, 50, 60 pounds, where a Pacific sailfish is 100, 150 pounds. That's like a, a, a small blue marlin to us here. So, and they're a lot more fired up. They're a lot hungrier there. And what's interesting, what they've determined in Guatemala is that the oxygen concentration below you know, 75, 100 feet of water is not really, it's not high enough for those fish to sit in. So a lot of times it keeps those fish high on the surface where they're always kind of looking for, for prey. Um, and they'll fire in on a bait and they're just, they don't, a lot of times they won't leave it. They'll come in on a squid chain. And what we were doing on this, on this last trip is we had the production team down there and, and I didn't want to capture me fighting a fish and a sailfish jumping. To me, it was always about the bite. It's always about the bite. It's always about seeing that bite. And so we would, what we would do is we'd have one come up on a squid chain and we would just bring the chain all the way to practically the transom of the boat. Like the first wake, it's just skipping practically out of the water to where you just hold the rod tip over with a, a ballyhoo and you just pretty much just dump it in his mouth. So when you can, I mean, when you can see that and when you get 50 shots a day at that, that's amazing. You know, you come to this area, of course, you can have days where you can catch 30 fish, but it's not that common. Um, when you can travel to an area in the Pacific, um, you know, two and a half hour plane ride and you're fishing and having 50 opportunities every day, that's, you know, that's why I go. Gotcha. That makes sense to me. It just kind of caught me off guard there. I mean, you're talking about, you know, an area where the Stewart Sailfish Club has been prominent since the 1940s. I mean, you're you're in sailfish heaven. So it just kind of caught me off guard when you said that. So, 
So heading into the end of this, before I get to my traditional wrap-up question, what can we look for in coming episodes of Unfathomed? You know, we're just, again, we're just trying to travel to new destinations, trying to tell new stories. Um, I think what's kind of around the corner is I've always been kind of confined to smaller boats, um, you know, because I've always followed Earl Benz. Earl Benz was a, 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 a big advocate of mine. He, you know, was in charge and started Triton Boats back in the day of real-time Florida sportsmen. They sponsored me for all those years. He left. He started Camus Boats. We started with a bay boat at 26. We, we uh, moved that up to a 28 hybrid. So I've always kind of been, you know, not stuck, but in smaller boats. And that limited to where I could go, what I could do. You know, so now they're making a 34, they're making a 40. And we have other things that are coming that are going to afford me the ability to travel farther and do different things. You know, I grew up watching Jose Wahebe. He was a giant idol of mine. And I mean, I can still remember the day I met him at a Mercury event before he passed away. And I was like, oh, I was just starting as a show host. I went up to him. I'm like, listen, you'll know me. I know you probably hear this from everybody, but I'm starting a show. I'm a huge fan. You know, you have any advice for me? And he was nice enough to take the time to say, listen, you know, just stay true to yourself. Stay true to yourself. And I, I kind of still remember that to this day. But he always, he to me, he it was about the adventure to him as well. And he took risks and he went to crazy places. You know, I can always think back where he took a brand new Verado prototype and he ran that boat to to Isla, you know, from Key West to Isla. And in my mind, that's something that I want to replicate. I want to make, I want to take uh, a, a Camus with Mercury's on, outboards on the back and I want to run it to Guatemala. That's kind of a, a dream of mine. Wow. And that's kind of what I'm planning on doing. Well, that's fantastic. That's the kind of adventure story I want to hear. That well, that's the kind of adventure story I want to live. But I, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll go vicarious when I can. So no, that's fantastic. Um, all right, so let's get into my wrap up question. This is a traditional question, and I ask everybody this. And given your incredible career as an angler, the number of species you've caught, and the amazing places you've been to catch them. What's your grail fish? What's that one fish that's still out there calling your name, that bucket list fish that you still want to get? <sighs> now, somebody has an answer. It's a dogfish. Yeah, yeah my, my yellow lab has an answer. Um, stop, stop. Um, sorry about that. No, it's all good. I've got two yellow you know, labs also. Oh, boy. Um, you know, I, I it's funny that the one fish that I really haven't caught is a, is a giant bluefin. You know, I, the, the fish that I love the most targeting now is yellowfin. And I don't get a lot of uh, opportunities to do that. We travel over to the other side of the Gulf Stream. We fish in the Bahamas. Um, you know, the Pacific has some, some really large ones that were started to target as well that really have not been targeted for years or really not been. It's been thought of as a billfish destination, not a, as a tuna destination. So I'm really... My thing is either a big yellowfin or a, a bluefin, but I would love to get, you know, a giant bluefin or a yellowfin over in the 200 pound class. It's just something about tuna that just the power of them. It's just always kind of been intriguing to me. Oh, those are fantastic uh, grail fish. I'm right there with you. I love tuna fishing and the opportunity to get a big bluefin would be fantastic. Captain Gods, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with us today. Your insight has been uh, certainly educational, as is Unfathomed always. It's one of those shows I learn a lot from. 
And uh, so with all sincerity, thank you so much for being on the Rodcast today. Thank you. And thanks everybody for watching. I really appreciate it. Well, my listening crew, them hound dogs are barking. So I guess it's time that we take a break, a bourbon break, and spend some time thinking about the wonderful things one can do with a bit of corn, rye, and barley, and a wee bit of patience. Because when you know what you're doing with those primary ingredients, you end up with a heavenly concoction that is worthy of an angler's attention. And on today's bourbon break, I want to pour deep from a bottle of Angel's Envy, which if you think about it, is only an E and an R away from being an Angler's Envy, which is something we all experience when we drool over a new rod, reel, lure, knife, or other equipment someone else has gotten and that we don't have, but you decide you have to have it, so you go home and order the same damn thing. Or maybe you're envious of the fish that your buddy is catching and you're not catching. Or envious of going to the places that you see on the fishing shows you watch or the magazines you read. In fact, if we think about it, envy is a central part of fishing. Or at least the fishing industry because the industry wants you to be envious and to desire the things they're selling. Selling like the shiny boats and colorful lures and adventures in fishy waters where you're destined to catch your trophy and then perpetuate the cycle of envy as you post your pictures of your fish and the drinks you've had on shoreside so that others are envious of you. You boast and toast and embrace the envy other, others feel toward you, and they book the trips, buy the tackle, post the pictures, and the envy sustains. Hand it on, angler to angler, a legacy of envy. Yeah, from where I'm sitting, envy is crucial to recreational anglers. And yes, envy is one of the seven deadly sins, but anglers have been pretty welcoming to a host of sins of all sorts. And for the angler, envy seems less a sin and certainly not a deadly sin than a virtue. For what angler can ever be free of envy? And why would we want to be? I envy every one of you every time you go fishing. But what then of angels envy, the name of which identifies a single angel, the possessive is singular, not plural, and so the bourbon is the envy of a single angel, but can an angel who envies be an angel? Wouldn't that earn expulsion? But the story goes that angel's envy is named such to express that an angel envied us and our freedom to drink something as marvelous as bourbon. When distillers make bourbon or other spirits, about 5% of the spirit is lost during barrel aging. In the distilling world, that loss is understood to be the angel's share. But because we get to keep the other 95%, the distillers of angels envy proclaimed, that we get the better deal than the angels. So the angels are clearly envious of the 95 to 5 split. And we have to admit that there's reason for the angels to be envious of our access to this bourbon because it's good stuff and it's got a great reputation. I have a lot of friends who identify angels envy as their go-to bourbon, no matter the context. And there's a good reason for that. At a 45 to about 50 bucks a bottle, it's a solid bourbon for that price point. The Angel's Envy carries a mash bill of 72% corn, 18% rye, and 10% malted barley. It's a 50% alcohol bourbon or 100 proof bourbon, but it's not got that high alcohol razor burning feel to it. 
Now, according to Angel's Envy, the Angel's Envy Straight Kentucky Bourbon is aged for about six years in virgin American white oak barrels and then finished in French oak port wine casks that they import from Portugal. That finishing process takes between three to six months. Angel's Envy was one of the first distillers to start using wine barrels to finish their whiskeys, and that trend has expanded among many other distillers now. The eye of the Angel's Envy leans toward a coppery reddish caramel color with hints of dark cherries in the color. This redder coloration, I assume, is the result of the finishing process in the port barrels. The bottle is unique and gorgeous. It's a broad tapered body and it stands out on the shelf among the many other cylindrical bottles that are out there. And the minimalist labeling on the bottle lets the etched angel's wing show through the bottle at the height of the bottle's shoulder. It's just a unique and aesthetic, aesthetically pleasing bottle design. As to the nose of the angel's envy, sweetness dominates with tinges of vanilla and smoky oak which hints at a little bit of spiciness there. The palate is dominated by a smooth, sweet range. There's a lot of fruit sweetness here with dark fruits like prunes, raisins, purple grapes, and dates dominating the palate. And that grapefruit sweetness blends with the vanilla that was evident in the nose and then blends further with the smoky oak tastes. And there are tints of dark chocolate here too as well. And I'm assuming that comes from those wine barrels also. The finish is not a long finish, but it also doesn't introduce anything new or unexpected. It doesn't throw anything new at you. The finish is clean and pleasant and dominated by that sweet, fruity taste. All in all, there is nothing to complain about the Angel's Envy Straight Kentucky Bourbon. It is a really good bourbon, and I get why so many people I know swear by it as their go-to bourbon. It's one of those bourbons that you should have on your shelf and that you should eagerly reach for when pouring for yourself or your friends. And hey, those are my thoughts about Angel's Envy and Angler's Envy. As a final note and my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all. However, I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. And speaking of, let me give a quick shout out to Mangrove Mamas and Sugarloaf Key. And if you know me, you know how important Sugarloaf has been throughout my life. And with all of my time there, there's no way I couldn't give props to one of my favorite places on Sugarloaf Key, Mangrove Mamas. The food at Mamas is out of this world and they mix mighty fine drinks. Mama has, Mamas has the ideal Florida Keys atmosphere. They've got live music every night and man, could I go for their paella and a rum runner there right about now. So yes, indeed, here's the Mangrove Mamas on Sugarloaf Sugarloaf Key. And hey, speaking of Sugarloaf, here's to the nights we'll never remember with our friends we'll never forget. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. Now let's get back to the fish. Okay, my listening crew, it is time for this week's top 10 list. And as I said before, this week, I'm going to do something a little bit different because I'm in a professorial mood. And rather than looking at a particular piece of tackle, I want to turn this week's top 10 toward the culture of fishing, to the lives of anglers, and to the great things that have been written about fishing. 
Now, back in episode 1.14, the one with the interview with the guys from Mudhole Custom Rod Building, I counted down my top 10 fishing movies, and I got a lot of positive response for that top 10. And since I've written about my favorite fishing books in several venues, I know that I will eventually count down my top 10 favorite fishing books and eventually my favorite fishing songs. But for today, I want to count down my favorite quotes about fishing. And yes, of course, many of them come from my favorite books, films, and songs. So they kind of hint at my favorites for those lists as well. Now, it would really be beyond even my own ego, my own inflated ego to count what I've written about fishing in my favorite quotes and books. But I'll just let you all assume that my stuff belongs in these lists and I'll reserve the list for what others have written. And given my position as a professor of English, I'm going to keep today's list literary. The problem is that I could easily count down my top 100 fishing quotes, probably more. I mean, I read a lot about fishing, and I've even taught a class about the literature of fishing. So for today's top 10, I'm going to up the ante and offer my top 15 fishing quotes, so a 50% increase bonus for this week's episode. With that in mind, let's count down my top 10, excuse me, my top 15 fishing quotes. At number 15, Let's go with that remarkable British writer who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1907, Rudyard Kipling, who famously wrote, I only hope the fish will take half as much trouble for me as I've taken for them. Now, Kipling wrote about the sea and about fish fairly often, including a short, short poem called Ten Fish, which we would now understand not as fish made from ten, but as canned fish which he wrote between 1914 and 1918, so exactly the duration of World War I. And since canning fish was very important to the war effort and defeating troops, it seems like a ripe topic for the time. Here's how it goes. It's a short poem, so indulge me as I share it with you, even though that quote before, I only hope to fish will take half as much trouble for me as I've taken for them, is really the quote that I'm pointing to here. But here's the poem. The ships destroy us above and ensnare us beneath. We arise, we lie down, and we move in the belly of death. The ships have a thousand eyes to mark where we come, but the mirth of a seaport dies when our blow gets home. And so, as the famous vaudeville line says, do you like Kipling? I don't know. I never kippled. Okay, at number 14, I will admit I am a big fan of Jimmy Carter's writing about fishing, and his book, An Outdoor Journal, is one of my favorites, in that he offers one of my favorite quotes about fishing when he writes, and I quote Jimmy Carter here, many of the most highly publicized events of my presidency are not nearly as memorable or significant in my life as fishing with my daddy. How can you not love that? How can you not love a president saying that one of his best memories is fishing with his daddy? That's just fantastic. All right, at number 13, let's go with that classic American writer, Mark Twain, who once wrote, don't tell the fish stories where people know you, particularly don't tell them where they know the fish. The man was a genius. At number 12, another American fishing writer who stands on the dais as one of the greatest fishing writers of all time and probably one of the best anglers, if not one of the most influential, and that's Zane Gray, who wrote that fantastic line, if I fished only to capture fish, my fishing trips would have ended a long time ago. Truth, Zane, truth. Preach on, brother. All right, at number 11, I want to go with that great trout writer, John Gerich. But the thing is that I love all of Gerich's books. They have been incredibly influential in my fishing life and in my fishing literature life. There are dozens of great lines from Gerich. 
But for today's list, I'm going to go with one of my all-time favorites when he writes, the solution to any problem, work, love, money, whatever, is to go fishing. And the worse the problem is, the longer the trip should be. Amen, Mr. Gerich. All right, at number 10, I want to stay with another American literary, another American literary giant. And this is an odd inclusion because for all of his writing about nature and living in the outdoors, this author did not write that much about fishing. I'm speaking, of course, about Henry David Thoreau, or as my Thoreau professor in grad school used to say, Thoreau. But on those rare occasions that he did write about fishing, he gave us gems like this. Many men go fishing all of their lives without knowing that it's not the fish that they are after. That's a classic line and one of those deep philosophical statements that are best taken up after multiple bourbon breaks. Okay, at number nine, I want to pay homage to one of the greatest quotes in all of fishing history, and that's the Latin phrase, piscator non solum piscator, which loosely translated means fishing is not always about catching fish. The quote is used as the motto by the Fly Fishers Club in London. It has, in various sources, been attributed to originally appearing in the Book of St. Albans, which was first published in 1486, and it's often attributed as having been written by Dame Juliana Berners. Now, the Book of St. Albans is also referred to in some places as the Book of Hawking, Hunting, and Blazing of Arms. And for many years, I had Piscator non solum Piscator as my email signature line, and I've often considered having it as a tattoo. It is a fantastic quote. Okay, at number eight, since I brought Jimmy Carter into the mix, let me throw another literary fishing president in here. And let me turn to the fantastic words of Herbert Hoover, who wrote, Fishing is much more than fish. It is the great occasion when we may return to the fine simplicity of our forefathers. Now, I'm not one for nostalgia, and I have no desire to return to the fine simplicity of my forefathers because that simplicity lacked air conditioning, refrigeration, and a whole bunch of other creature comforts that I just assume allow to encumber my life. But despite that, that's a damn good quote from a president. So for number seven, let me turn to the words of one of the greatest American fishing writers of all times. Yes, Ernest Hemingway, who among the many great things he wrote about fishing, gave us the memorable line, somebody just back of you while you're fishing is as bad as someone looking over your shoulder while you write a letter to your girl. That's just good stuff. Sticking with great American writers, I have to turn to the words of one of my favorite writers, and that's John Steinbeck, who famously said, it has always been my private conviction that any man who pits his intelligence against a fish and loses has it coming. I feel this way all the time, Mr. Steinbeck, all the time. All right, at number five, I can't have a list of great fishing quotes without including one of the most influential fishing writers of all time, and that would be Sparse Gray Hackle whose writing I could go on and on about endlessly, but I won't do so other than to say that of all of his great writing, he gave us this line. Soon after I embraced the sport of angling, I became convinced that I should never be able to enjoy it if I had to rely on the cooperation of the fish. Wow, the truth buried in that is incredible. All right, what about the line from another great writer in Mr. Thomas McGuane, who said, Angling is extremely time-consuming. That's sort of the whole point. Yep, absolutely. Oh, I nearly forgot Roderick Haig Brown. I almost left him off the list. One of the greatest fishing writers of all time. He wrote so much about fishing that it's hard to pick just one quote from him. 
But for the number three position, I'll go with one of his most famous lines, and that's, there will be days when the fishing is better than one's most optimistic forecast, others when it's far worse, either as a gain over just staying home. Amen to that too. All right, so we've come to my runner-up quote, and I'm going to admit now that this quote comes not just from one of my all-time favorite writers, but also one of my all-time favorite fishing books. And you might not expect this, because this is not an author who is known as a fishing writer. And in fact, the book that his quote, and yes, I'll spoil it a bit because it's also where my number one quote comes from. This book was anomalous for him in some ways. It certainly matches many of the themes of his other work, but that fishing figures so prominently in it seems almost out of character for him. Nonetheless, I am so glad that he wrote this book, and it has been important to me since I first read it as a teenager. I'm talking about the great British writer George Orwell and his book Coming Up for Air. I absolutely love this book and encourage you to read it if you haven't. And so my runner-up favorite quote comes from Coming Up for Air, and it is the direct, simple claim that, quote, fishing is the opposite of war. Yeah, I love that. And that brings us to my all-time favorite fishing quote. And as I said, it also comes from Orwell's Coming Up for Air. But before I share that with you, let me give a quick retrace of the top 14 fishing quotes determined by the fishing professor. At 15, I only hope the fish will take half as much trouble for me as I've taken that for them. Rudyard Kipling at 14, many of the most highly publicized events of my presidency are not nearly as memorable or significant in my life as fishing with my daddy. Jimmy Carter at 13, do not tell fish stories where the people know you, particularly don't tell them where they know the fish. Mark Twain at 12, if I fished only to capture fish, my fishing trips would have ended a long time ago. Go Zane Gray at 11, the solution to any problem, work, love, money, whatever, is to go fishing. And the worse the problem, the longer the trip should be. John Garrich at number 10, many men go fishing all their lives without knowing that it's not fish they are after. Henry David Thoreau. And then the famous quote at number nine, unattributed here, Piscator, non solum Piscator. At eight, fishing is much more than fish. It is the great occasion when we may return to the fine simplicity of our forefathers, President Herbert Hoover. At seven, somebody just back of you while you are fishing is as bad as someone looking over your shoulder while you write a letter to your girl, Ernest Hemingway. At six, it has always been my private conviction that any man who pits his intelligence against the fish and loses as it coming, the great John Steinbeck. At five, soon after I embraced the, embraced the sport of angling, I became convinced that I should never be able to enjoy it if I had to rely on the cooperation of the fish, the great writer Sparse Gray Hackle. At four, angling is extremely time-consuming. That's sort of the whole point. Thomas McGuane. At three, there will be days when the fishing is better than one's most optimistic forecast. Others, when it is far worse, either is a gain over just staying home. Roderick Haig Brown. And at number two, fishing is the opposite of war from George Orwell. And sticking with George Orwell at number one, I give you George Orwell from coming up for air. Is it any use in talking about it? I wonder. The sort of fairy light that fishing and fishing tackle have in a kid's eyes. Some kids feel the same about guns and shooting. Some feel it about motorbikes or airplanes or horses. It's not a thing you can explain or rationalize. It's merely magic. Wow, I just love that. Remember that sense of wonder about fishing tackle? You get those Bass Pro catalogs and just stare for hours. Orwell picked up on that right before World War II. That is just amazing. 
And that wraps up the professor's top 10 fishing quotes. As usual, if you want to let me know your thoughts about this week's countdown, just send me an email at sid at inventivefishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. Hey, and if you've got a great book you want to talk to me about, give me a shout. I'd love to see something new that I haven't read before in the world of fishing literature. Hey, that's it for the top 10 for this week, or the top 15 as we kind of drug it out. But let's get back to casting. Well, as heartbreaking as it is, I do believe we have come to the end of another episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. And what a great episode it was. Hey, not only did you get to hear that great conversation with Captain George Gazd of the Unfathom Fishing Show and that great review of Angel's Envy, if I may say so myself, but you also got to hear my countdown of my favorite fishing quotes. And you also got to hear me sing Elvis songs. What more do you want from a podcast? But seriously, I do want to thank Captain Gods for taking the time to speak with me today on the Rodcast. And if you don't watch Unfathom Fishing, I urge you to check it out. It is a fantastic fishing show. And I do hope that you enjoyed my thoughts and words about Angel's Envy. And I hope that my countdown of my favorite fishing quotes was at least entertaining, if not mildly literarily inspiring. Before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The chart is out of date. I say again, the chart is out of date. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday of next week. And I hope you and all of the members of the listening crew are out there spreading the word about the Rodcast. And of course, if you have comments or questions about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future Top 10s, Bourbon Breaks interviews, or information about specific fishing-related topics, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And be sure to check out all the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which you really ought to subscribe to. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!